Hello, I'm Alec, and this is Scandal 101. midterm on Saturday, another one, and it is way more intense than the first one. So wish me luck on that. Some things I've seen in the news recently, I was going to do this scandal a while ago, and I decided to put it off for a little bit just because I didn't want to do it at the time. And I'm glad I ended up pushing it off because I recently saw that the estate of Henrietta Lacks is suing some either like pharmaceutical or some genetic modification cellular company thing. And just in case you're not aware of who she is, her cells have been used extensively throughout medical research, cancer research. Her cells have saved millions of lives, but her family was not informed of the cell use until like 20 years after they were used for their purposes and the family has made no money off of it. So that's interesting to see that they're finally suing Yeah, I'll be interested to see what happens with that. Just a couple of other quick things before I jump in. If you have your own personal scandal that you want read at the end, please send that to scandal101podcast at gmail.com. I'm going to be reading one that was sent in at the end, and I'm very excited for all of you to hear it. And then the last thing I want to say is how I heard about this scandal. I had never heard of it before until yesterday when, well, yesterday at the time of this recording, we had an assignment for one of my classes and this case was one of them. And the case focused more on the legal issue at hand rather than what actually happened. But I was so fascinated. I spent an hour or two researching it and I decided I had a different episode planned for this tip for today, but I completely switched it up because this one is so fascinating. And I am going to be talking a little bit about the legal implications that came out of this toward the end. So with all of that buildup and without further ado, this episode is Boston's Fire Tragedy. Coconut Grove Fire. The first part of this story is going to talk about what the Coconut Grove was, and then it's going to talk about the night leading up until the fateful fire. And the first part of this story, uh, the information, it comes from an article titled The Story of Coconut Grove Fire by the Boston Fire Historical Society. The Coconut Grove, it was built in 1927, and it was a, quote, restaurant slash supper club, end quote. As Daniel Fleming writes for the National Archives, this place was, quote, one of the most popular social scenes in the city, end quote. It treated people to all sorts of things, such as food, entertainment, and there were random appearances of movie stars and music artists that were popular at the time. So this was the place to be if you were in Boston. And when this took place was on Saturday, November 28th, 1942. On that night, there were a lot of people that were in that club, and the club capacity was around 650 people, but reports, multiple reports from that night say that there were over 1,000 people in, in the nightclub at the time. The reason why there were so many people there is there's a couple of reasons why. First, it was Thanksgiving weekend, and there was a big local college football game between the Holy Cross Crusaders and the Boston College Eagles, so a lot of people People were out that night after the game just celebrating or 
I guess, being sad about their team that lost. <laughs> and then also, another reason that there were a lot of people is there were 19 naval ships that were at Boston Harbor at the time, and many of the men who had free time um, from the Navy were looking for something to do in the area. For context, there was this little um, conflict going on called World War II. So, of course, people are going to want to get their minds off of that. And what could be more perfect than an evening at the Coconut Grove? Not only is this place offering a lot to guests, like there's dinner, there's shows, there's all these cool things, but it, it just has a cool vibe. It has a cool layout, and the layout is important to the story. And this information is coming again from that Boston Fire Historical Society article that I mentioned earlier. The Coconut Grove, it was a single story building, but it had a basement underneath it. And this wasn't just some dingy old basement. This basement had a bar, and the bar in the basement was called the Melody Lounge. The basement, it had a kitchen, storage areas, and some freezers down there. Going back up to the first floor, the main floor, there was a large dining room, there was a ballroom, and then there were several bar areas that were separate from the ballroom. In the dining room, there was a stage that had various shows that would, um, like different acts that would play up there to entertain the people in the dining room. So this place, I mean, it sounds, it sounds like it would be a cool place to go to now, let alone in the 1940s. From the court case Commonwealth v. Wolanski in, at the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court, and that's the case that I read in my class, there was one main entrance into this club. This main entrance was a single revolving door that led into a main foyer. Once there, to the left, you will see a staircase that goes down, and that leads to the basement where the Melody Lounge was. If you look to the right when you walk in, there was a room called the Caricature Bar, and that contained two bars. And the foyer didn't only lead to that bar and the stairs, but it opened up into the main dining room. Through the dining room, there was a passageway that led to the Cocktail Lounge. So like I said, this club had it all. It had that one main entrance that kind of opened up to a bunch of different areas. You could go downstairs, you could go over to the bar, you could go into the main dining room, the ballroom, and then that would lead to another bar. So there's a lot going on there. So we talked about the main entrance. Let's talk about other entrance entrances and exits. There was the main entrance, the revolving door in the foyer. That it is a key part later. So please don't forget the revolving door. There was another set of doors in the cocktail lounge, which again was through the dining room, ballroom, and then through a hallway, and then there was exits in there. This door was a door that opened inward, not outward. Those two entrances and exits were really the only ones for the normal use of patrons in the bar. Setting that aside, there were five possible there were five other possible emergency exits, but all of those were located on the first floor. So if you were in the basement, the only way for you to get out was you had you would have had to come upstairs, and then exit once you're upstairs. So that's the layout of that's the layout of the club. That is the a little bit of history about the Coconut Grove. Let's let's get to this this horrible incident, let's get to the fire. Going back to the Boston Fire Historical Society article, around 10.15 that night, and again this is November 28th, 1942, in the Melody Lounge, this is the bar room in the basement, 
A bartender noticed that a light bulb located near the top of an artificial palm tree was out. And when I say palm tree, yes, they were. this place was decorated at least in the basement with fake palm trees, with cool decorations. There were things hanging from the ceiling, cool drop, like drop cloth kind of things, different fabrics hanging around. It was a very cool vibe. So the bartender notices that this light is out. And the palm tree, the fake palm tree, is located in the corner of the, of the basement room, the Melody Lounge. There has been some speculation as to why the bulb was actually out. Some reports have said that it was unscrewed purposely by a patron so he could have more intimacy with his date. Maybe the bulb just went out, but regardless, the bartender sent a busboy over to where the light bulb was to go fix it. Just an interesting tidbit from the case earlier, apparently one of the patrons said to the busboy to leave the bulb alone and not relight it. When the busboy goes over, surprisingly, you may, this may be a shock to you, when a light bulb is out, it can be hard to see because, because there's no light. So due to the lack of light, the busboy lit a match in order to find where the socket was for the light bulb. Again, this was in 1942, so it's not like you have your phone, you can just whip out and turn on the flashlight. He apparently assumingly fixes the light bulb and he blows out the match. Shortly after the blowing out of the match, the palm tree bursts into flames. The bartenders, they try to put out the flame with water and seltzer bottles, but their efforts unfortunately were not successful. At this point, people in the Melody Lounge in the basement, they started heading again for the only exit out of the Melody Lounge, which is the staircase that leads back up to the foyer. This staircase is only four feet wide. <laughs> and with that, when I read that, it reminded me of that scene from The Office where Stanley is like, a queen bed is five feet wide, Michael. I am not five feet wide. That was a horrible, <laughs> that was a horrible Stanley impression. But yeah, if a queen bed really is only, is really is five feet wide, the staircase was narrower than a queen size bed, just for reference. The fire quickly spread to the other decorations and furnishing in the room, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, quote, a fireball of flame and toxic gas raced across the room and toward the stairs, end quote. Obviously, when this happened, panic ensued. There was an emergency exit at the top of the stairs that people tried to get open, but it did not open. Later on, it was found that this door was locked by a key, so there was no way to open it without the key. The fireball flew up the stairs and flew into the foyer, and people started trying to exit out of the revolving door, which is the main entrance in the foyer. However, only a few people were able to get out the door when the revolving door became jammed due to the amount of people trying to exit. Because of the jam, people were being crushed against the door by the weight of the crowd, further jamming the door. And, and a quote from the one of the articles, quote, Observers outside could only watch in horror as relatives and friends were crushed by the weight of the crowd surging against the jammed door, end quote. One main entrance is jammed and people are 
trying to pack out that door, which is only making that situation worse. One of the emergency exits is locked by a key, so there is no way to get out. The fireball, can't forget about the fireball, then exploded into the dining room, and this is where the majority of the patrons were. There was supposed to be a show that started at 10 p.m., but it was running late and it hadn't started, so people were just kind of waiting around in the dining room. Panic, like panic was ensuing everywhere, but it just only grew and people started racing toward an exit and it was just chaos again. The the foyer exit was jammed with people trying to get out. One of the emergency exits is an opening. And also at the time, exits were not easily marked. There weren't those magical glowing exit signs that I think a lot of us take for granted on the day-to-day basis. Many of the remaining uh, exits were locked. Some employees were able to escape through exits because of their knowledge of the building and they tried and they helped some patrons escape through those exits that normal patrons wouldn't have known but employees did. Unfortunately, even with those employees' brave efforts of trying to get people out, the toll of this fire was going to be beyond what people could have imagined. From the National Archives article, it took only eight minutes for the entire building to be engulfed in flames. Heavy smoke and flames were emerging from downstairs, spreading upstairs. Panic kept growing and growing. A quote from a U.S. Naval Reserve lieutenant named John Kip Edwards Jr., who was upstairs at the time, he said, quote, It seemed like when the lights went out, everybody's intellect went with them, end quote. No one has any idea of what's going on. It's mass panic, and I mean, I can't blame any of them. There's this, the building is on fire, and there's presumably no way to get out. So we talked about how there are two main entrances and exits to this club. We know that the first one is jammed, the revolving door. So that second entrance in the cocktail lounge. Ah, yes, that door. The door that opens inward, not outward. Well, as crowds of people pushed toward the door, people were being pushed against the door, and the door basically became a wall. There was no way to open the door with the force of the people pushing against it because, again, the door opened inward. So if everybody is pushing against the door, panicking, there's chaos, no one is thinking we need to op- we need to like create a gap for this door to open. Everyone is just pushing against the door, making it literally impossible for the door to open. Alrighty, so back to that Boston Historical Fire Society article. Luckily, at the time if there is any luck in this situation. There was um, a Boston Fire Department unit only three blocks away that were extinguishing a a car fire. After noticing smoke coming from the building or from the area, and then people were literally running to them being like, "There's there's a massive fire going on, they rushed over to the building. There was a quick emergency response to the scene and the fire was extinguished pretty quickly. However, the damage was was already done. Once the magnitude of what happened was realized, the Navy, Army, Coast Guard, and National Guard were called in to assist with the evacuation and assistance to the injured. It was so desperate, it was such a desperate situation that taxis and newspaper delivery trucks were being used to transport injured people. One other interesting thing about this is, quote, and an interesting twist of fate, area hospitals had practiced a disaster drill the week before, end quote. The hospitals in the area were just by chance prepared for a huge disaster. 
Unfortunately, due to the chaos, many of the victims were taken to other hospitals that were not prepared for this kind of influx of patients. One, uh, uh, one hospital received a new victim every 11 seconds. A temporary morgue was established, and those who were pronounced dead at the scene were sent to the morgue. And there were several cases of people being pronounced dead at the scene who, when they got to the morgue, realized that they were still alive, and then they got sent to a hospital. Luckily, a lot of those people did end up surviving who were accidentally sent to the morgue, but it just shows you how insane this scene was. If you've been paying careful attention, you'll notice that I haven't told you how many people died and how many people were injured because of this, and that's because I wanted you to understand the scene and the chaos before I tell you these numbers. The amount of people injured from this fire was 166 injured, which is awful. The amount of people who died? 492 deaths. How does a criminal law case tie into this horrible tragedy? Before I get into the actual case, one interesting thing we talked about in my criminal law course is there was a lot of blame on the boy who lit the match. It wasn't, well, that blame was not necessarily proper, and keep that in mind as we go through this, like, the, the issue with this case. From the case Commonwealth v. Wolanski, the Coconut Grove Incorporated was dominated by Barnett Wolanski. He spent a lot of time at the nightclub where he inspected the premises and he managed the business. Unfortunately, he got sick on November 6th, or November 16th, 1942. This was 12 days before the fire, and he had to go to the hospital for about three weeks. So this person, Barnett Wolanski, basically he's like the general manager. He makes sure everything in the club is going okay, all the decorations are cool, the premises are cool, you know, like look good, they're managed correctly, whatever. He had to go to the hospital because he was sick, so he wasn't there a couple of nights before the fire or on the night of the fire. He was gone for 12 days before the fire. He was not worried about being in the hospital because, quote, he knew it would be all right and that the same system he had in place would continue during his absence, end quote. So basically, he's like, I've got this place on lockdown. Everything that I do is going to continue even if I'm gone, which, I mean, if you're essentially a general manager, that's a good thing you want. You want your business to be able to have people there that can run it and you don't have to be there 24-7. The court said that, quote, there is no evidence of any act, omission, or condition at the nightclub on November 28, 1942, apart from the lighting of a match that was not within the usual and regular practice during the time before the defendant, who was Wolanski, was taken ill when he was at the nightclub nearly every evening, end quote. Okay, so what does that quote mean? Basically, the court is saying, yep, we agree with you. Everything in the nightclub the night of the fire was under the same conditions that you allowed the club to be in when you were there in person. So even though you weren't there in person, nothing was different. Other than the act of lighting the match, nothing had changed in the time that you had left to go to the hospital from the night of the fire. So the court is like, yep, we agree with you. No problem with what you're saying. Eventually, after a trial, Wolanski is found guilty. So what is he found guilty of? he's found guilty of 19 counts of manslaughter. And again, I will remind you, 492 people died. Okay, so he appealed his case, 
And the issue on appeal was, did Walensky's wanton and reckless conduct result in manslaughter? And what this means essentially is this, quote, the essence of wanton or reckless conduct is intentional conduct by way either of commission or of omission where there is a duty to act, which conduct involved a high degree of likelihood that substantial harm will result to another. Wanton or reckless conduct amounts to what has been variously described as indifference to or disregard of prob probable consequences to that other or the rights of that other, end quote. Okay, whoa, what does that mean? <laughs> it took me a little bit to understand it as well. The court found it didn't have to prove that Wolanski caused the fire, but by conduct that was wanton or reckless, it was a reckless disregard of the safety of patrons in the event of a fire. The court basically said there is always a risk of fire in a, in a business, in a in a nightclub, there's always a risk of fire, but as the business owner, you have a duty to ensure that you are taking safety precautions so that if a fire does occur, there are clear ways to exit the building, clear ways for procedures to be handled, so basically that what happened doesn't happen. Because of the lack of exits, the fact that the doors were locked, the fact that there were all these flammable decorations, these flammable fabrics, basically that the place was ready to go at, at, at if a spark happened, there was faulty wiring. Through all of this conduct, it showed a wanton and, rec and reckless disregard of the safety of the patrons, and that is why he was found guilty. So the court, when it was appealed, it went up to the Supreme Court of uh, Massachusetts. Uh, they affirmed his conviction. They were like, nope, you're guilty of this. You're not guilty of murder because murder is intent to kill. And they're not saying he intended to kill anybody, but what they are saying is your conduct was so reckless and you recklessly disregarded the safety of the patrons that it resulted in death and you need to be held accountable for that. From the court case's Wikipedia page, he received a punishment of 12 to 15 years uh, and he was sentenced in 1943. However, he served four years before he was pardoned by the governor in 1946. And apparently the governor was like a close friend of his before he got elected and then he got elected. So then he got pardoned. So that's a little shady. But not only that, he was he was also dealing with severe cancer. So that was another thing that kind of contributed to his release. When he was released from prison, he told reporters that, quote, I wish I had died with the others in the fire, end quote. So, it, I mean, it seemed like he had a lot of guilt. I, how could you not? You, your club, not that you caused the fire, but because of the way you ran your business, 492 people died. And then nine weeks later, after being released, released from jail, he died of cancer. So why did I pick this case, first of all? 
One thing I always go back to when I pick these cases is the definition of what a scandal is. One of the definitions that I always look at, it's like one of the first ones that pop up when you Google it, it's a scandal is defined as, quote, an action or event regarded as morally or legally wrong and causing general public outrage, end quote. In this case, were Walensky's actions morally or legally wrong? I, I mean, the court found that they were legally wrong, but I would also argue that they were morally wrong. You have a duty to your patrons to ensure their safety, and the fact that you don't do that, regardless of legal consequences, I, I personally believe it's wrong, just morally wrong. And it also poses questions as to why were the doors locked, those emergency exits. He, you know, he didn't intend to kill people, but why was this allowed? Why... Why was the place decorated with these flammable decorations? Why did it only take eight minutes for an entire building, basement and first floor, to go up in flames? And another aspect of this case is fairness. Was it fair to be convicted of 19 counts of manslaughter? Should it have been more? Should it have been less? Was a sentence of 12 to 15 years fair? Should it have been more? Should it have been less? I, I, I don't have a good answer, but it poses an interesting question. And the and earlier I mentioned that a lot of the blame for quite a while went on that busboy who lit the match. Yes, but for him lighting the match, the fire would not have happened. But I think we need to take a step back because the way the business was ran, the way the business was set up, there were toxic chemicals in the air. It, basically, the whole place was flammable, and all of this happened under the watch of Wolanski. One last thing I want to talk about with this case before I, I get to the personal scandal that was sent in. A lot of important lessons were learned from this fire. Building codes were amended across the city. Revolving doors were outlawed, but then they were reinstated only if the revolving door was between two outward facing exit doors. And I don't know if this is a national standard, but today that's generally why when you have a revolving door, there are always other exits right beside it. Exit doors had to be clearly marked, unlocked, and free from blockage. And there was also the placement of emergency lights and sprinklers that took place after this case. So a lot of important change did come out of this case. It um, a lot was learned in terms of ways to have your business, have a club, whatever, have it be set up to where it can be more fire safe. But then that poses the question of, was this case a result-oriented case? And what that means is, did the court decide on guilty because they wanted to hold someone accountable for the actions? Because before this fire none of those standards were in place. So in theory, Wolanski's building could have met the fire code of the time, and it turns out that the fire code was not adequate. Not necessarily that Wolanski's way of running the business was improper. By today's standards, absolutely it was improper, but at the time, perhaps the building met fire code. So was it fair to hold Wolanski liable for this when possibly the fire code was not adequate enough to address all of the problems that in turn let this fire grow to be so big so fast? 
Alrighty, and with that, that concludes Boston's Fire Tragedy, the Coconut Grove Fire. I kind of gave my closing thoughts, so I'm not really going to say a whole lot else about the case. Um, I just thought it was a super interesting one. I had never heard of it before, and I hope you found it interesting. It's a horrible, horrible case. Almost 500 people died. Weird inflection when I said died. Um, 166 people were injured. I watched some interesting videos of people who were in the club uh uh, the night of the fire and some of them went to the roof to escape so there's there's some good information out there if you want to do some further research or if you want to watch a first-hand account of what the fire was like there are some of those on youtube all righty so now for the personal scandal of the week this was sent in by emma reading from the email hey when I saw you were looking for hometown scandals, the first thing that came to mind was something that happened my senior year of high school. I would also like to mention that I knew you, talking about me, in high school, like really well. P.S. You can totally cut that out, but I feel like that adds to the drama. Okay, back to the story. I believe it was spring of senior year when I woke up one morning for school and my phone was full of notifications from classmates and friends. Immediately, I opened up my phone and saw that my friend Taylor had attached a photo of something. I clicked on it, and right there before me was something I couldn't have possibly prepared for. It was a picture of my assistant principal's... junk? Weenie? I would call it a dick pic, but I'm not sure that's podcast safe. We can say that in the safe space. Anyways, after looking at the picture for an uncomfortably long amount of time, the questions started flowing, like, why was I looking at my assistant principal's dick on my phone? Why did my friend have this picture? What the hell was going on? I don't remember much from that morning other than getting ready as fast as I possibly could so I could get to school to see shit hit the fan. I remember texting you about it right after I found out and you told me that I probably shouldn't have the phone or have the picture on my phone just in case. After thinking about it, I realized you were probably right and deleted it from my phone and headed to school. Once I got to school, everyone was talking about it and trying to put the pieces together on what exactly was going on. I don't know exactly how I found out, but it turns out that the assistant principal had been on Craigslist looking for young girls to hook up with for money. One of my classmates who had had issues with the assistant principal made a fake account and ended up catfishing our assistant principal and eventually he sent the student, who he thought was a younger girl but didn't realize was a student, weenie pics. <laughs> weenie pics. If my memory is correct, I think the assistant principal did find out it was a student and the student ended up trying to extort him to keep him quiet, which didn't work and ultimately the student was charged with extortion, hence the reason for realizing the picture. I don't really remember much else from that day other than the teachers and students being in utter shock. I am 100% for sex work, but it felt weird that someone that worked with kids was also trying to sleep with someone just a year older than us. I still have mixed feelings on it. Was it stupid? Absolutely yes. But I feel bad for his wife and kids who had to deal with the media and the backlash. I don't know where he ended up or what the outcome was, but it was something I think about from time to time. I love the podcast. Keep up the great work. I'm proud to say that I know you and you are for sure a special person in my life. Best of luck with the podcast and beyond, Emma. 
Aw, thank you, Emma, first of all, for the sweet message, and also thank you for sending that in. Um, yes, so Emma and I dated in high school, and now we are friends. Um, so, hey, Emma. Yeah, that was <laughs> that was a crazy thing that happened in our in our high school. If I, if my memory serves me, um, the assistant principal resigned or left voluntarily or whatever. So it's like basically you can leave or we're gonna fire you. So he left. No idea where he went, no idea what happened after that. I don't know if the charges, like, I don't know what happened with the student who was charged with extortion. I think it was maybe two people, for sure one, maybe two. But yeah, that was, that was a crazy thing that happened in our high school, um, our senior year. And I have a, I have my own, like, there's a crazy other scandal that happened in my high school that I was a part of. Um, that obviously was not a part of this one. I luckily was not someone who got sent um, the assistant principal's dick pic, but I saw it on plenty of people's phones, so that was that was more than enough for me. <laughs> Emma, thank you for sending that in. Um, to those of you who didn't go to my high school, I hope you found that fascinating and mind-boggling because everyone in our high school did. The scandal is done. The personal scandal is done. Emma, again, thank you so much for sending that in. I really appreciate it. And thank you all so much for listening. If you want to keep up with the latest, stay in touch on social media. I'm going to post pictures from um, the scandal case, the fire one. I'll post some pictures of the club so you can see what that looked like. You can follow us on Instagram at Scandal101Podcast, on Twitter at Scandal101Pod, on Facebook, if you search Scandal 101 Podcast, you can find us on Facebook. Our website is scandal101podcast.podbean.com. And if you have an episode suggestion or if you want to send in your own personal scandal to be read on the episode, please send that to scandal101podcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. Yeah, just thank you so much. I'm I really enjoy this podcast. I really enjoy making it and it's cool to see where everybody listens from. So, thanks for listening. Um wish me luck on my midterm tomorrow and I will I was going to say I'll see you next week, but I don't see any of you. So, you'll hear me next week. <laughs> Alrighty, This has been episode 21 of Scandal 101.